So that is how an eagle teaches its young. And it was, it's interesting that the time comes when the mom makes it uncomfortable for the chicks to stay there and they have to leave. And I, I think you'll often read in scripture about, you know, the, the Lord carrying you on the wings of eagles and all that stuff. And that's, you know, that's no joke. That's what they do, just like the picture. But it's interesting that the mom, at some point, when, when she knows the eaglets are ready, makes it uncomfortable. And in the context of what we're learning, and, you know, they talk about this, obviously, in this Torah portion, um, that's what the Lord does, is he teaches and protects and nurtures and does all of that stuff. And then just like he did a few Torah portions back when he came to the people and he said, you've been here long enough, go to the promised land. So they went, they, they'd learned what they needed to or all they were gonna learn and, and they went. And the eagle does the same thing, you've been in here long enough, you're on your own now, she makes it difficult for him to stay. And this idea that we're gonna uh, approach today and probably a couple more times is that the Lord does the same thing. He will nurture us and teach us and lead us and then he makes it uncomfortable for us and we have to respond. And typically we don't respond that well. And we have to go through this cycle again and again. But in the context of what we're reading and what Moses is saying, um, you know, be thinking of, because we, we typically, or at least I typically, don't think of the Lord purposely making it uncomfortable for us so that we have to do something. And often in scripture it will say, that he, you know, he releases the Babylonians to come or whatever, whatever the deal is, in order to provoke us to look for him because we've, we've stopped doing it or stopped following him or whatever. And, you know, he loves us enough to do just what the mama eagle does and make it difficult for the baby so they have to leave the nest. They have to go to the next step. They have to learn how to fly. And... Uh, that's what Moses is talking about here. And remember, this is the last thing that Moses will do. He's led the people for 40 years, and today is the day of his death. So the Lord told him to write a song, you know, and to us, maybe that sounds weird. But think about the context. Um, you know, they don't have iPhones or Bibles or computers or nothing's written. So everything the Lord is teaching, you have to remember or you have to, and that's what the Lord did with the Matzeroth, you know, the stars. There's something to remind you. You'd build these altars of stone. And, it, you know, the Bible would say, so your children ask, what meaneth the stone? And then you could recount whatever it is that the stone means. And you, you would teach the kids that way. So in, in this day and age and context, you, ha you had to remember stuff. And way, one of the ways that you see in Scripture is you... Uh, Remember a song, they call it a song, and it's not really a song, it's more like a sound bite. But it's long, too. It is long. But when you think about it, it's it was forty-eight verses or something that make up this or forty-six or something make up the song. But basically what he's done is he's recapped the entire history and future of the Jewish people. So if you're like a modern person who can't sit still for more than five minutes. This is awesome because it gives you the beginning and end of all history 
here in 48 verses, you can read it in five minutes and then go on about your, your business. But that's the purpose of this, and it's called uh, Ha'azanu, which means, that's what I was asking you, what the thing, because Azanu is the word for listen, and Ha is basically the word for the, so it probably really means something like the listener, or anyway, that's, that's you guys. So Moses has recapped everything that the Lord taught him in these 40 years. He's recapped all the instructions, statutes, judgments of the Lord. And he's added, or the Lord has added through Moses, what he means by some of these things and practical applications and all that stuff. So all that's come to an end. The people are getting ready to go across into the promised land. And this is really the last thing Moses does. And next chapter, the last chapter in Deuteronomy, uh, is when he does, when he prophesies over the tribes. So that's really interesting, but it's not a lesson to the people in general. It's, you know, I mean, every time one of the patriarchs gets ready to expire, he he does this. You go to his sons and he prophesies and he tells them, and they're right on the money. They're always right on the money. Good, bad, or indifferent. That's exactly the way. Uh, it falls. But for today, this is the last thing that Moses is going to say to the people. And, you know, personally for me, I think, you know, I've never, I've always wanted to go through the Torah portions, but I've never done it. And these last, I don't know, seven months, eight months, whatever it's been, and I didn't really think about it till today, but it's like Moses has been my constant companion every day because I'm listening to something or I'm reading something or I'm thinking about it. And it's, it's kind of weird, you know, for a New Testament 21st century American Christian to, to have Moses riding on my shoulder for the better part of a year. And it will be a little weird when I don't have him there anymore because if, even if we start back at Genesis, it's several books before we get to Moses again. And we started this just about at the beginning of Moses. So it's every day Moses has been in my ear. For the I was surprised how much Aaron was in, intertwined in, in all that yeah. going on with Pharaoh and stuff. That he struck a lot of the right. of the water. They don't really show that in the movies and stuff. They don't <laughs> show Moses doing it. Right. Aaron's the one that did it. Aaron's, yeah, and Aaron's the guy that did most of the talking. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's been interesting for me to go through all this stuff. Um, hopefully it's been interesting for you. So next week, and remember, we're running a week behind, so this should, just should be. In fact, Wednesday, or Tuesday, is Simchat Torah, which is uh, the rejoicing in the Torah. It's the day after the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's the day in which uh, you've finished reading your cycle of the Torah and you go back to the beginning again. You unroll the scroll all the way to the end. You've got the last verse of Deuteronomy and you roll it all the way back up and start at Genesis 1 again. And uh, so that's actually happening on Tuesday, I think. But we're, we're running a little bit behind. So uh, if you remember when... The children left Egypt. The, the, the lessons from Egypt to the Red Sea were many, and I thought they were they're awesome. 
But then they came to the Red Sea, and of course, that's the, the lesson. They figured they were all dead, and the Lord comes through in a rather dramatic way and parts the seas and eliminates the Egyptian army, and the people you know, go through on dry land. And when they got to the other side, when they first, the first step they made into the wilderness, Moses' sister Miriam composes a song. Right, and a, a song, right, is just a recapping of some event they need to remember. So they've wandered in the desert for 40 years, and it's been uh, interesting, good, bad. You know, there's been a lot that goes on and a lot of lessons, and the Lord's been there in a huge way. And Moses is, uh, you know, Moses was Moses. So this is the last day of Moses' life, and they're going to leave the wilderness, and they get another song. So it's just interesting that the people in the wilderness were bookended by these songs, that they're supposed to remember what happened. Um, so he starts his dissertation by saying, listen, that's, you know, that's why they got the name there. That word listen is that uh, Azarim word and then the haw in front of it, of course. So he starts by talking about the word or his, t it says in the King James, my doctrine is as the dew and the rain. And of course, it's it's just it's talking about the things that the Lord was asking him to share with the people, all the testimony that he's given, and the truths and the laws and the instructions and the judgments and the statutes and the practical stuff and the rebukes and the and the blessings and all of that. That's all wrapped up in this word translated in Hebrew as doctrine, and he goes on to describe it as as the dew and the rain. And it's interesting because the, you know the dew falls. It says on the tender herb and the rain falls on the established grass and water or rain or dew is always a picture of the Lord's word it's his instruction and Moses is saying right here that the instruction of the Lord the things that I have told you uh, are easy like the dew there's you know I, I don't need to inundate the new believers with stuff it, it comes down lightly as the dew and it waters the tender herb. And then for those that need more, it's also the rain that come down on the grass because, you know, you, we all pass from immature to, or hopefully we do, from immature to mature believer and we don't need the same things from the Lord. In the beginning, if he rained hard on us, we would all drown. It would be too much information. But as you grow in the Lord, hopefully you do grow in the Lord, and, and then you need more, just like the, you know, just like the grass. When it's young, it needs the dew, not the big rain. So that's exactly what Moses is saying. So it says, uh, well, I don't know what your version says. The word, it says, Moses accosts us with the name of the Lord. And that's been his testimony from the beginning. Is he didn't, you know, he, he didn't really sugarcoat this. this this is the way it is and the word in hebrew is karah and it means it it means to accost someone you know you're not oh well you know if you want he's telling you the way this is the lord this is what he said this is what you need to do or this is what will happen to you so it karah means accost call out or address but it's just interesting they selected that word or Moses selected that word or the Lord, you know, whoever it is, because it, that's exactly what it is. The Lord is accosting us with who he is. 
Moses says he accosts he accosts us with with the name of the Lord, and he ascribes greatness to the Lord. And he goes on to say, the Lord is our rock; he's perfect, true, and without evil. And then the verse goes on to describe us. So if the Lord is um, our rock, perfect, true, and without evil, we are corrupt, perverse, and crooked, <laughs> which is true. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we don't we don't usually seem to get it. But he also sort of slides in the point here that uh, this, the fact that we are crooked, perverse, and uh, corrupt doesn't reflect on the Father. It's, it's not his fault we are this way. And in, in the New Testament, you read the parable of the, the prodigal son. And the prodigal son was like this, crooked, perverse, corrupt, he wanted the money of his inheritance before his father passed. He wanted to go do what he wanted to go do. Well, that was no reflection on the father because the, the father raised him right. And it said he disobeyed the father to go do all those things. And in the context of our eagle friend and the, the nest and the shaking of the tree and all that, that's sort of us, right? We... we disobey the father and we tend to want to do what we want to do and pretend like we're still the son and then we come to the end of our rope and we need to return to the father and we fully expect the father is going to discipline us and uh, you know he certainly has every right to but he doesn't he runs to meet us and he throws his arms around us and it's awesome and what you've done you've done and you, you know there's consequences to what you've done but that doesn't mean the father loves you any less. And any of us that have children know that, you know, once in a while your child is going to do something that's not what you ask or wanted them to do. And you'll have to discipline them and you have to be harsh with them. But that doesn't mean you don't love them anymore. And you will always welcome them back immediately, right, if they repent like the prodigal son did. So I think that's the picture of what he's talking about. <coughs> Excuse me. And then one of my favorite topics has always been um, returning to the old ways, the good ways. And we've pr probably talked before about Kadem, the word Kadem, it's often translated as eastward. It's, you know, Kadem is where the sun comes up, S-O-N-S-U-N, it's where the sun comes up. It's all good things come from, you know, that side and the when it becomes light and all of that stuff, that's that word kadem. And uh, used in this, it, it does use the word kadem, and it's talking about returning to that, returning, you know, heading eastward, returning to the Lord, to the sun, to the light, as opposed to westward where things get dark and indistinct and, and all of that. So he's, he talks a little bit about returning to the days of old. In, in Deuteronomy, well, chapter 32, verse 7, it says, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask thy father, and he will show you, thy elders, and they will tell you. And in Jeremiah 6, 16, another one of my favorite verses for a different reason, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way? And walk therein, and you shall find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk therein. And if you read the rest of that, it's just an indictment of all of us, really, because we don't. We, 
we, we often know what he says and decide we're not going to do it. But anyway, Moses is telling the people because he's leaving and there's no book, right? You'll have Joshua. You'll have all the things I told you for 40 years. You'll have the Lord watching over us. The, the Torah is written on the rocks, the 12 rocks that they, they wrote. There's a Torah scroll in the ark, so it's available. But ultimately, the best thing for you to do, and I would suggest the best thing for us to continue to do, is to seek the wisdom of your elders. Because there are people who have walked with the Lord for 50, 60, 80 years. I mean, seriously walked with the Lord. And they know the Lord. They know things. And not only do they know things, they have experience. Because they've gone through whatever it is you're going to go through. There's nothing any of us will experience that, you know, is new. Someone's already been through it. And I can guarantee you Christians have been through it. I can guarantee you Christians have come out the other end of it. And when you get Christians or followers of the Lord who go through stuff and successfully come out the other side of it, those are the people you need to talk to when you're in the middle of it. And that's what Moses is saying. You know, go back to the old ways. And you don't get a lot of that in the New Testament. And to some degree, the, the main body of the church in America sort of rejects this. They kind of don't want you to go back to the old ways. They want to focus on the new stuff, the New Testament, the, the, you know, like Isaiah said, a new thing. I'm going to bring you a new thing. And if you, you know, if you read, people quote that all the time when they're about to do something they shouldn't do. Oh, it's a new thing. The Lord's doing a new thing. Well, that's not, you know, read it. That's not what Isaiah said. He, he was talking about the redemption of Israel. He's bringing water to the desert. And, you know, all of, he's bringing the people back. He's making life out of death. It's not new. It's, it's new in the sense that his people are there where they weren't. But anyway, we tend to think, oh, the new things are better. You know, we get wrapped up in the New Testament. We don't spend time in the Old Testament. A new car is always better than an old car, unless you're like Dan or I. It's just, you know, we tend to do that. But Moses is saying, don't do that. Because all the truth, all the wisdom, all the things you need to know are in the old ways, the old paths. Kedem, the, where the sun rises. That's why Judah was on the east side. Because the tribe of Judah, which represents the Jews, was on the east side when they camped and they were the first to see the sun come up. They were the first to know, you know, oh my gosh, the light is coming again. And that's the place you want to be. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. We've probably only done this a thousand times. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. So this verse starts, remember, it's the word zakar. In Hebrew, remember doesn't just mean, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. It's to think about it and do it. If you remember it, you need to do it. Just remembering it doesn't do you any good. It's like knowing God loves you doesn't save you. You have to respond to it. There has to be. So that's zakar. And then it says, akrith rashit kadem. It says, end, beginning, kadem, the, the, the old ways. 
It's out of the end, or from the beginning is the end. You, you, the end comes first in Hebrew. They, he tells you the end at the beginning. So the things that happened before are going to happen again. So if you're in question about what's going to happen, what does the future hold? You know, what's going to happen to this country? Well, I can tell you because I've already seen it happen and we know it's going to happen. And it fits in nicely to what Moses says about the shaking of the branch and the, and the, the nest. There's a purpose in that. He needs you to, to move out of the place of your comfort. He needs you to be prepared. He needs you to struggle. It's scary for the little eaglets because mom is shaking the nest, but they don't want to be there anymore. So they have to go to the next step. They have to, they have, they don't have any choice. They have to do it. And that's what it's going to be for us. You know, and what does that mean? Well, Tuesday at 1136, there's going to be uh, Chinese soldiers marching up the street, shooting up all the houses. I can't tell you that, but I know something is going to happen in the future. And it's, and it's going to revolve around this idea of we need to get out of our comfort zone. You know, and will it be Cuban people or Chinese people or Turkish people? Or will there be a coup in this country? Or, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what will happen. I can't tell you what will happen. But I can tell you that we're just not going to slide into the end times, everything being great. You know, that's not a picture that you see in Scripture ever. It, it's, it's just like the eagles. Everything's good. They've lived all their life. People have fed them. It's been warm. Mom cares for them. It's been awesome. Until it's not. And then it's scary and frightening. And they probably don't know what or why. And no doubt there's a percentage of little eagle snowflakes that would say, no, 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 I want to stay here. Not going to happen. The shaking is coming. So it behooves us, I would think, to do exactly what Moses is saying. To learn from our elders. To learn from what's happened before. To learn what the Lord is telling you is coming. Ecclesiastes 3.15 says, That which has been is now. That which is to be has already been. He's telling you the same thing. There's, you know, and, and later he'll say there's nothing new under the sun. But remember, we've talked before about the idea that the Eastern mindset is not linear. It's cyclical. So we say I'm going to the store. That's, that's partially accurate because we're coming home, right? We're not going to the store and staying there. We're going to come home again. So we should be saying... Something that involves the cyclical idea. I'll be home in a minute, I'm going to stop by the store. Or I'll be home in an hour, I'm going to pick up some T-bones, or whatever it is. But we don't think that way. Americans and Western minds, because we're of the Greek mindset, we think linearly, I'm going to do this. My goal is over there. The Lord, you know, the, the Lord is leading me down this path to salvation. We say all the time. That's great, except it's not a path, it's a cycle. You're going around the top of the rampart and you're coming back to right where you started. Our salvation ends with us being in the garden with the Lord again or 
you know, in, in our new mansion, the New Testament says, but being with the Lord again, it, it ends where it began. That's where we were. That's where we'll be. And that's why the Hebrew word shuv, return, is important. Because we say repent, and repent is not, uh, is not really accurate. Because if you're not repenting from the right stuff, you're still going in the wrong direction. <coughs> what we need to be doing is shuv. We need to be returning to the place where it started. The Lord. We need to return to the Lord. Okay, so 1 Chronicles 12.32, it says, And the children of Issachar, which were men that had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do, the heads of them were 200, and all their brethren were at their commandment. Throughout the Old Testament, you keep getting these, you know, if you're paying any attention at all, you will get this uh, understanding that the tribe of Issachar, those guys spent every moment in the word, if you want to say that, dealing with the truths of the Bible, of the things that the Lord said, trying to know what was coming, trying to be able to do the right thing, leading the people as much as they could in knowing what the, you know, what the right course of action was. And we'll get to this next week when they're, when he's doing the blessing, but it's, uh, at least the rabbis make the case, and I, you know, they make it scripturally, <coughs> that <coughs> the Issachar and Naphtali were always together. And Naphtali was making money. They had ships and they had, you know, they did all this stuff to make money. And the reason, I think it was Naphtali, they, the reason they did that was because they were supporting the elders of Issachar who spent their days discussing all the things of scripture and, and what the Lord wanted so that the people could better understand what was coming. Because these things like the eagle again, you know, you're shaking the nest. The eaglet knows nothing but comfort and warmth and people bring you your food and it's just awesome. And now things are going to change. And you, you read in scripture a number of times how the Lord has led us out on eagle's wings, right? He's, he's done that and if we're riding on his back because we can't fly then that's fine but there's an event that happens first before that eaglet is on the mother's back and that thing that happens first is the nest is shaken the, the branches are shaken the mom flaps her wings to get the babies to do something that they wouldn't normally do on their own so when we see stuff uh, going south in a big way, and we get all, oh my gosh, you know, it's this guy's fault or that guy's fault, or oh, what are we going to do? Don't worry, because there's a goal here. The Lord understands that he needs to bring us out of the nest where it's been comfortable and warm and we've been fed and all that. We need to be in a position and a place where all of a sudden we'll do this. We'll return to the old ways and the old things, and we'll start searching out ideas in scripture and oh my gosh maybe we'll even look in the old testament to learn stuff about what the lord wanted for us that time is coming you know and i'm on it all the time about uh, malachi and hosea and you know jeremiah and all these guys and that's always the picture at the end something's happening something has to happen to get us out of the nest to get us out of our comfort zone in the case of Malachi, the hearts of the fathers turn to children, the hearts of children turn to the fathers. 
in Hosea, uh, and we'll actually read this later, you've got the three children and their names, and then, you know, he says, but the time is coming when, and, you know, recounts all that. All through scripture, you see that picture. And we tend, I think, not not to uh, uh, investigate those things because we're in the nest. It's warm and it's comfortable and people are feeding us. And just like in the, in the promised land, the land is abundant and we, it's easy to make money. It's easy to make a living. And <clears throat> I'm just saying, don't get comfortable because the Lord... I, I think, I mean, he hasn't spoken to me directly on this, but I'm fairly certain because that is the picture in scripture. That is the picture of the old ways that this comfort is short-lived in, in, in scripture, short-lived is three or 400 years, <laughs> but we're approaching that. We're pushing 300 years and it's been great, but there's a shaking coming. So don't, you know, don't think the Lord has abandoned you. Think of it as the Lord loves you and he's teaching you and he's, you have to go through this just like the eagles had to be flung out of the nest if you want to fly. If, if you want to get to the end with the Lord, that's going to happen. It just is. There's no way to... Okay. So then the Lord talks about... Um, he brought 70 people into Egypt. And 70 is the number of nations. There are, biblically speaking, there are 70 Gentile nations. There are 70 nations in the world. And of course, now we have more, but basically, <coughs> there's 70. And anytime you see 70, it's always a reference to the Gentiles and to the nations. So there's a, a reason, and it's, you know, it's reasonably well known that you have 70 people that come into Egypt. Well, they're Jews, right? I mean, this is the patriarchs. These are, so to get 70 of them has always been, uh, there's more to this than, than you think. Because 70 is the number of Gentiles, but the people coming in are not Gentiles. They're Jews. They're the patriarchs. So this is what the nation of Israel is going to be. So you have to think through, well, why are there 70 of them? Why aren't there 68 or 72? Or why does he even tell you how many there are? He tells you 70 for a reason. Because he's talking about the Gentiles. So while it might be the patriarchs that are coming in, in a sense, it's all of the Gentile nations that are coming in. Because there's 70 of them. So he brings, he talks about bringing these 70 people in. And then he's bringing them out. He's bringing out the nations again. And he says, out of those 70, well, let me just read this in Exodus, Exodus 19:15. He says, now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me and above all people for the earth is mine. So all of these 70 Gentile nations are his. There's no question about that. And out of those 70 nations, he picks Jacob. To you, he, Jacob is his son, it says. And Jacob becomes his people. So he owns all of the nations, but he's using one of them, Jacob. Now, who's Jacob? Israel. Who's Israel? I would suggest 
us, Gentiles. So it goes back to the 70 people coming in. That speaks of the Gentile nations. And then who does he pick on the way out? Israel. I mean, Jacob at the time, but he later changes it to Israel. And who is Israel? All through scripture, it's Judah and Israel, Judah and Israel, Judah and Israel. Jew and Gentile. Israel is the Gentile. So it, it, it all sort of goes together. And then he says, uh, Jacob or Israel is the lot, he says, to measure the people or the rope. And again, in those days, we didn't have a laser range finder and a fat max. And, you know, I've got a wheel that I can measure, I don't know, I, I guess 999 feet and 11 inches. They didn't have that. So how do you measure stuff? With a rope. You get a length of rope and you stretch it out. Or you use a, you know, a cubit, right? Fingertip to elbow. Well, my cubit is different than your cubits, so that's not a great way. So you use a rope. Then it's always the same. So that's the measure. So he says Jacob, or Israel, is the measure for all of these 70 nations. Jacob is mine. He's the one I picked. And he will be the measure for all of the nations. And what's a rope? You know, it's a bunch of strands twisted together. And that's exactly what you see all through Scripture. Is it's never, uh, it's never one guy. It's it's the people. It's the tribe. It's the group. It's the community. One guy can screw it all up. You know, one guy's sin isn't just his sin. It infects the family, and then it infects the tribe, and then it infects the community. But it's always this picture of a rope because it's a bunch of strands woven together. And it's this idea, or Moses is making this idea anyway, of the measure of the nations will be Jacob. He's the one I've picked. So he calls uh, Jacob, or Israel, the apple of his eye. Um, and then, okay, so this, this, I should have probably started here. Deuteronomy 32, 11 and 12. As an eagle stirreth up her nest and fluttereth over her young and spreadeth abroad her wings and taketh them and beareth them on her wings, so the Lord alone did lead him, and there, uh, and there was no strange God with him. So this is this picture of you know that we've talked about of the eagle, right? The Lord is the eagle and he's protecting and taking and guiding and doing all the things <laughs> eagles do to their to their young. So the Lord alone did lead him. It's just him. There, there's no other strange God with him. And we tend to want to do, we want to, you know, we're told to be inclusive and be uh, whatever all those words are I can't even think of, huh? Yeah, tolerant, accepting. There's a D one in there, I can't remember. Um, and that's actually the opposite of what we should be. Because we should be focused on the prize. We need to be focused on the Lord. And for us to, to do, to be the people that he wants us to be, we have to be focused on the Lord. We have to be representing him. He has to be the only God. He has to be the only law, the only rule, the rope, the measure, any way you want to look at it. And when we start including other stuff, oh, no, I, don't, I, you know, I, I, I just love the Lord. Uh-huh. Okay, you know, how do you spend your time? 
What are you spending your money on? I can guarantee you in every life in this room, certainly including me, there are things that we let into our lives that, you know, they're just taking time away and effort away and money away from where we should be. You need to be singularly focused on the Lord. So there needs to be no strange God with him. So the eaglet makes it uncomfortable, pushes the eagles out because she loves the eaglet. She wants them to live and function and be all they can be. Well, that requires, you know, a little stress. And a lot of times, I know a lot of people that live their whole lives trying to not ever have any stress. Everything's, you know, oh my gosh, I won't, you know, I don't know what to do, whatever you want. That's not awesome. You're going to have stress and you need to know what it means. You need to not panic when the Lord pushes you out of the nest. And you need to believe with all your heart that if he's pushed you out of the nest, he's going to swoop down and catch you on his back if you can't fly. Because he's, he's telling you that here. He's told you that, I mean, using that same metaphor. He's probably used that metaphor six times. You know, don't worry. And it's, it's not our nature to not worry. When somebody shoves us out of the nest, we start panicking, you know, and don't panic. <clears throat> Try to fly. And if you can't fly, know the Lord is there to get you. And that we've talked about, you know, the last few Torah portions have been standing and listening and walking and entering, you know, and all these different things. And that was, what, two or three weeks ago, we were standing. And that's, that's what he said, is he recounted all of the bad things, all of the stupid things that we've done that have separated us from the Lord and all of the punishments we've received and the chastisements and all the threats and all of that. And he says, you're going to do it again. You're going to the promised land. It's going to be great. And because of its great abundance in your lousy heart, you're going to find yourself thrown out of there again. <clears throat> but in the end, you're going to be standing. And that's this picture. There has to be something, you know, that, that we don't want to look for, that we don't want to have to go through. There's going to be this shaking. There's going to be, and it's easier to see now as we see America crumbling, literally. I mean, America is going down the tubes and we all think, oh, no, no, it, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be fine. It's not going to be fine. It is, it's crashing and burning and you're never going to get it back. And you can either be, you know, upset about that, or you can recognize it's probably the Lord pushing you out of the nest. Because remember when we talked um, a couple weeks ago about how this country was founded, and it was found the the, the uh, Puritans came later called Pilgrims came over, and they were the first ones to actually maintain their mandate about sharing the Lord and all that stuff. The first thing they did when they got off the boat was build a meeting house so they could worship, which, you know, they, they did multitask. It became a hospital later and all of this stuff. But their focus was always on the Lord. And our, our country was born that way. You look at all of the early presidents. We talked a little bit about Washington and Lincoln and some of these guys and all of the stuff they had their hand on, had their hand on Deut Deuteronomy 28. And this, uh, you know, last week, Lincoln had his hand on 31. I mean, he, these guys knew this stuff. They spoke Hebrew. They talked about, should the language of this new nation be Hebrew or English? And unfortunately, it went, went with English. 
they saw themselves, the pilgrims saw themselves as uh, bond servants leaving the bondage and coming to the promised land. They saw this as the promised land. You know, so that's how this country was founded. And they knew. Washington knew it. Lincoln knew it. All these guys knew it. Franklin knew it, that it, it, it doesn't stay. We're in this nice, warm, cozy nest and everything's good. But the time is coming when you're going to get thrown out of it. And then what? And they tried everything they could do to set it up so that it would, it, it would make it through and last and all that. But they all knew because that's what the Bible says. That's how it has to happen. We, get, we tend to get comfortable, we tend to get warm and fuzzy, and then we tend to just leave the Lord because of our great abundance and our hard hearts, and then we find ourselves, the only way to come back is to be kicked out of the nest. So that's where we are. And I don't see uh, this country coming back, but I don't see it as necessarily a bad thing, <laughs> because this will be the last time we're supposed to look to the Exodus generation to learn the lesson, see that as an example, and do not do the things that they did. Learn from what they didn't do and what they did do. This will be the last time. There's not going to be another generation that gets to look back on a group and say, oh yeah, I don't want to make those mistakes. We are that generation. We're supposed to look with my daughter or you know, some, some near generation. Needs to look back and say, okay, this is the last time where we're going to get this right. And hopefully we'll get this right. We'll see. Um, okay, so let's go to Deuteronomy 32.15, and it says, But Jeshurun waxed fat and kicked, or trampled, maybe your Bible says, Thou art waxen fat, thou art grown thick, obviously talking about me, thou art covered with fatness, and then he forsook God which made him and lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation. Now, in this, I should have mentioned this earlier, in this, well, if you've all read it, you know this, Moses refers to the Lord as the rock several times in this, and obviously the rock of, uh, of our salvation. Jeshurun is, is just another way of saying Israel, or Jacob, even. It's always struck me as odd that Jesus and Jacob and all of these J words... There's no J in Hebrew. These are Y words. It's Yasharun. It's Yisrael. It's Yahshua. It's Yehovah. Yeah, it's Yahweh. And it, to me, that's just another one of those, you know, the enemy will do, it, it's death by a thousand, even the tiniest little thing, he'll try to mess up. So anyway, this word in English, Yasharun, is uh, from the word Yashar, because it's not Jeshurun, it's Yasharun. It's from the word yashar or upright. And uh, upright is actually the root of the word Israel. And the name uh, Yahweh gave to Jacob. So have a look at this. And I just noticed that part of this printed wrong. Okay, yashar is the word for upright. You see it up there. This didn't print right. There should be a line across there, and these things should be, because that's uh, an in, a noon. Anyway, this and this and this and, and 
this, and all of these are all the same word. So from the word upright, you get uh, Yashurun, the symbolic name for Israel. You get the word Israel. Uh, the, root, the word sa'ar, sarar, is the word for rule. You can see that's the first part or the part of Israel. Prince, captain, or to bind is that sr sound in Israel. Um, the end of Israel is the al, the l, the uh, uh, two there, and then the front is the ish to exist. So you put the the ish, the al, and the and the sha'ar together, and you get Yisrael, which means to be upright. It means uh, under God's authority, because prince, captain. Uh, King, ruler is authority, right? Those people have authority. And to this day, you've got sir, sire, uh, czar, Caesar, all of those words that are SR. So all of those words are all connected, and those are the same letters that you see in all of these words. I just thought it was interesting. In case you wanted to see why Israel means that, it really, really does mean that. Okay, Deuteronomy 32, verse 17. It says, they sacrificed unto devils, not to God, to gods whom they knew not, new gods that came newly up, whom your fathers feared not, or, or knew not. So, let's see. Not to gods. They sacrificed, and this, of course, is the people who have grown fat and due to abundance in their hard heart have stopped following the Lord and all of that. Um, this term not to God is we have that up there what's the next slide there we go not to God is lo eloha eloha lo eloha and you see the three letters highlighted in yellow curse is the word Allah which is actually pronounced Allah in English it's the same uh, not God not God is Allah. Fear is the word Sa'ar. Fear and, and Seir, uh, mounts, you know, where, where Esau went. Esau lived. He went out in the desert and he lived in the rocks and crags of the desert, Mount Seir. Seir and fear, Sa'ar and, and fear, are basically the same word. Esau became the Arabs. Is, uh, Islam. Allah. So when you read this new God that's, you know, these new gods that are coming up, there's a real strong um, connection, if you want to say that, with Islam, Allah, with all of the stuff that's going on in the Middle East. And if you want to, uh, if you think about the eaglets getting pushed out of the nest, this country is on its way down. The bad thing, for, for any country to be going down, another country has to be going up. Or for any people group to be crashing, another people group is, is, is rising. Right now, and this echoes through scripture, towards the end, you are going to see the Jews, and I believe you know, the United States, and uh, I believe Israel and Judah. 
right? You see those two put together all the time. You're going to see Israel and Judah going down, and you're going to see these guys, Allah and Islam, coming up. You'll see Esau and Ishmael rising. You'll see Jacob and uh, the Jews falling. And they understand that too. They, that's a, you know, a Jewish commentary will tell you the same thing. And they even have a word for it. I can't remember what it is now. But they both can't be good. They both can't be bad. One's always going to be up. One's going to be down. At the end, Israel and Judah will be up. Esau and Ishmael will be down. But before that happens, it has to go the other way. And I suspect that's what we're looking at. Because you see the, the, the collapse of Israel and the United States, and you see the rise of uh, radical Islam. You know, you, you see the rise of Islam. You see Esau and Ishmael are on the way up. And that has been prophesied for 3,000 years in Israel, and they have a word for it. And that's where they, they know they're there. We don't know it, but they know it. But a couple weeks ago, Moses said, all this stuff is going to happen. But at the end, you're going to be standing. Because the Lord is going to protect you. He's going to catch you on eagle's wings as you fall out of that nest. And that's what we need to look for. So, in, you know, and we all want to be there, right? We all want to be with the Lord at the end and with him in his house and walking in the cool of the afternoon in the garden with the Lord. I mean, it would be awesome. But we need to understand to get there, it's not all pleasantries and you know peacocks and unicorns. There is tribulation first. And that's uh, kind of what Moses is saying. So the new things, the new gods. And remember, uh, Muhammad didn't appear until, what, 624 AD? So he's like... 4,500 years later. So he's he's the new guy. He's the new thing that they were talking about. So for all this to happen, the Lord has to turn his face away from his people. But for that to happen, his people have to turn their face away from the Lord. So, you know, you be the judge. Is that what you see? All of the politicians, um, you know, what was Obama's big claim? Hope and change, baby. Hope and change. Well, anytime they tell you they want to change, uh, that's a bad thing. Hebrews 13.8. Yeshua is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Malachi 3.6 and 7. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed, even from the days of your father. You were gone away from mine ordinances. You have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of the host. But you said, wherein shall we return? We're not to look for change. We're to look for stability. We're to look to the old ways, to the, to the good things. We're to look to the east, to condemn, to the sunlight. We're not to look to the dark and to the west and to the indistinct times. So... Anytime somebody says, oh, I want to change all this, I want to change, change, change. You need to walk away from those people because you're not looking for change, you're looking for return. We want to return to the time when we walked with the Lord. We don't want to change all that stuff. 
So Moses is recounting this. Uh, he recounts the punishments that will come when the Lord turns his face from them. And we can all imagine what that looks like. We've certainly read about it, and I think we're living it. And we're, it it's not going to get better for a while. And he's, you know, it's like he's Debbie Downer. He's always telling them all these things that are going to come to them. And then he always ends it with, but the Lord will save you, rescue you, do whatever. You know, it, it always ends on a positive note. Um, Deuteronomy 32, verse 21, they have moved me to jealousy, that which is not God, that they have provoked to anger with their vanities, and I will move them to jealousy with those which are not a people, lo, lo me, and I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. And this is another one of these things that Moses is hitting on. A foolish nation is a nation that doesn't follow the Lord. A wise nation is one that does. And we learn that the foolish nation is going to conquer the wise nation for a little while. And you think, well, how can that happen? It can happen because the wise nation has turned its face away from the Lord. And the Lord will turn his face away from them. So we get to Hosea, uh, and in Hosea, you remember the story of Hosea? He, the Lord sends the prophet to marry the harlot, and they have uh, three children. The first one is Yisrael, which means to scatter. It means to sow or to scatter. You know, you sow seeds by scattering them. And then he has a daughter, Loru Hama, which means no mercy. And then there's Lo Ami, another son, which means not my people. So, so the Lord is telling Hosea the prophet and his uh, prostitute wife Gomer that he is going to scatter his people. He's going to show them no mercy and they are not going to be my people anymore because they have committed whoredoms with the world and they've followed other, other gods and all that stuff. So by the time we get down to Hosea 2.23... It says, and I will sow her into me into the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy, which is lo hamah. And I will say to them, which were not my people, thou art my people. And you shall say, thou art my God. So again, this is one of the, he's, he's, he tells you this 30 times maybe. You're going to walk away. I'm going to turn my face from you. You're going to turn your face from me. And then... Something will happen and you will return to me and I will be your God and you'll be my people. And that's what, what he's saying. And it's, I, I bring up the Hosea thing, uh, not that I have enough time to do that, but because the wording is the same. He's using the same names and he uses the same names three or four times in scripture and uh, even translated into the New Testament, you see the same sort of idea. So I think this picture you get in Hosea is, is certainly not just some arbitrary one-off kind of thing for Hosea, this this is again the picture of what's going to happen. And he keeps sharing it and sharing it and sharing it and sharing it. Moses has shared it maybe 30 times. I don't know. You're going to turn your face away from the Lord. The Lord's going to turn his face from you. Things are going to get really bad. Then you're going to turn back to the Lord. He's going to turn his face back to you and he's going to save you. And the time will come when that will be the last time that will happen. And it's happened all through history, you know, a dozen times or more. And eventually, 
there's going to be a last time. There will be one last time when the people will turn back to the Lord and he will turn back to us before he calls it a day and your 6,000 years are up. And I would suggest that this is the time. This may be the last chance we have. And in order for people to turn their face back to the Lord, I think things have to be a lot worse than they are because it's way too comfortable here. So, you know, on one hand, that's a bad thing. But on the other hand, that's an awesome thing because that's how we get to heaven. That's how we get into God's house is by, as a country, turning our face back to the Lord. And how do you see that happening? You know, you watch the news, you know what's going on, you know this country is spiraling in despair. We can go, oh yeah, you know, we're going to get the right guy and everything's going to... Well, maybe. But I don't read that in the book. And maybe this isn't the time. Maybe this, you know, maybe it's... Because the Jews believe we are in year 5780. We just flipped into 5780. So there's 220 years of history left, according to them. Because there's only 6,000 years of history before the Messiah comes back. So is their calendar wrong? Or is my, my thing wrong? You know, I look at the way the world is, and I don't see 220 years left. They're still waiting for him to come. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in 200 years they'll come? Two, well, if they got their calendar right, 220 years. I suggest, they, I hope, <laughs> they've got their calendar wrong. But I look around the world, and I, I, you know, I don't see... 200 more years it just don't. but maybe you know we could return to i don't know and go through the cycle one more time and then in 220 years those people will be saying this and you know we turned our face away from the lord turn our face back lord you know maybe that's when it will happen but my money's <coughs> on this being the last go around romans 9 25 26 and as he saith also in Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in that place where I said unto them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the children of the living God. Well, where was that place they were called, not my people? In Israel. That's, you know, and this is one of the reasons or the verses that I might suggest when I say... I don't know how, I'm not sure when, but I think his people will be called back to the homeland, to the Middle East, to Jerusalem, to Israel. And that presumably would mean many of us. How is that going to happen? I don't know. But I think it is, because it's in that place they shall be called the children of the living God. It's not, you know, over in that country or all over the world. It's in that place where they were called, not my children. That's where I'm going to call them my children again. So I think, you know, we're headed back at some point. So Moses is telling the people that Yahweh is going to scatter them and punish them, but not because he hates them. He's not going to destroy them. He's not going to let the world destroy them because he loves them. He wants them to get into a spot where they have to turn their face back to him and he can turn his face back to them and, and things will be good again. And, and, and Moses goes through this little section in here that's kind of interesting, and it basically says he can't destroy the people because then generations that came after that would look at those destroyed people and think they destroyed themselves and they won't see God's hand in it. So he has to save out a remnant 
so that they know it's God's hand. And that, you know, should give us pause. 1 Peter 2, 5 and 6, And he also his lively stones are built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Yeshua, Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. And we've read verses like that all of our Christian lives, and we've always believed, you know, that's not incorrect, that this lively stone, this spiritual house, this holy priesthood, this royal priesthood is us, right? Anybody who follows the Lord. And it is. But I think there's a whole lot more to it, because this is the history of his people from the beginning. We talk about the priesthoods and, and the, you know, even the lively stones. The spiritual house was the first letter of the first word in the book of Genesis. So all of this stuff, uh, it always comes back, always circles back to where we started. So if I had to give you any homework tonight, it would be Romans chapter 11. Just read that. Uh, he goes on, talks about the apples of Sodom and the grapes of Gaul, apples that look great but are worthless inside. Grapes that produce venom and poison instead of grape juice. <coughs> and then uh, the last words of Moses in the song to the children echo what you know, the Lord had already told them. In spite of your disobedience, at the end I will stand with you. And in, Deut- in, in chapter uh, well, 32, of course, 43 and then 45 through 47, <coughs> it says, Rejoice, O ye nations, with all his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and were render vengeance to his adversaries and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. And he said unto them, set your hearts unto all the words which I testify among you this day, which you shall command your children to observe, to do all the words of this Torah. For it is not a vain thing for you because it is your life. And through this thing, you shall prolong your days in the land, whether you go over the Jordan to possess it. So that's always the message. There's going to be trouble and tribulation and you're going to fail and he's going to turn his face from you. But in the end, turn your face back. Psalm 83, 2 and 3, it says, For lo, my enemies make a tumult, and they that hate thee have lifted up thy head, and they have taken crafty counsel against thy people and consulted against the hidden ones. That's the way this works, is they can't get to God, so they attack his people. That's us. And you see it going on all day long. These people will do anything to attack even the littlest, I mean, a commercial on TV, every TV show, everything makes the believer look like the idiot. Um, Everything you see is twisted towards making the Christian or the person of God look bad. Everything. And you see now, this has never happened before in the history of history, but now you have an entire political party coming out and saying, if you're a Christian, we don't want you. I mean, that's just nuts. That's never happened. So if you want to see why I think the world is close to where Moses is saying it is, and why I think that means the end is near, and I don't mean like next week or next <coughs> month, but I mean we're heading in that direction. It would be it's it would be unfathomable in this country to have one political party come out and just 
just say the things that they said. I mean, it doesn't make any sense because 60% of people who identify as Christians vote Democrat. So why would they come out and say, we don't want anything to do with you? I mean, it doesn't make any sense unless you put it in the context of a spiritual battle. And that makes perfect sense. And all the stuff you see, all the lies and the crap you see, it's because it's a spiritual battle. So, I don't know. We lost the rest of this somewhere. Um, oh, there it is. So, uh, we're basically at the end of Moses' life. The next, the, the, um, the last couple of verses, this is, these are the last verses really of Moses' life until you get to the uh, prophecy for the tribes. It says in verse 51, 52, because you trespassed against me among the children of Israel, and this is God talking to Moses, why, why Moses can't enter the land. Because you trespassed against me uh, among the children of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin, because you sanctified me not in the midst of the children of Israel. Yet you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go into it uh, and enter the land which I gave the children. So the, uh, the general sense is that Moses would go up to the top of Mount Pisgah. The Lord met him there, and it says he showed him the land. And we think, oh, you know, he looked out over the... And I don't think that's it at all. He showed him everything. He showed him Jesus coming. He showed him the crucifixion. He showed him the resurrection. He showed him beginning to end. He showed him what's going to happen to us. I believe he saw everything. Because that's what he's done several times with the patriarchs in the past. They see it beginning to end. Because God already knows it beginning to end. And I think Moses got to see all that. And it's interesting that Moses uh, went to Mount Pisgah and, you know, buried with the fathers. And you don't know where he is. There's no, there is no grave. There's no Moses bones. There's nothing. Nobody knows where he is. Who's the other guy that got the same treatment on the same mountain? Elijah. Who do you see at the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses and Elijah. Who do you see at the two witnesses? <laughs> I suspect we're going to see Moses and Elijah. There's so many similarities between these guys, it's, it's bizarre. But anyway, that's, uh, that's Moses' life. We'll do the, do the prophecies next week, and then we'll do something different.